0: Hey, Rohan, how was your weekend?
1: It was pretty good. I just hanged out with friends, went to Top Golf, and did some swimming. So we had our physical activity and then, you know, up with the movie night. And then Sunday was just a little bit of shopping and, you know, some alone time. So I got caught up with myself, self-care, did some reading since I bought all the Game of Thrones books. So if I finally had time to read some of those chapters. And
0: yeah, it's pretty good so far. Looking forward to reading
1: the rest of the series.
0: Cool. I didn't take you for a reader um, it's uh kind of fun to obviously watch Game of Thrones was fun, but reading is an art itself uh, what what are the big takeaways on reading Game of Thrones versus you know watching it if you will
1: um well when I'm reading it I was I sort of visualize some of the scenes differently despite the way they're described so it's kind yeah. of interesting to see like oh it's described this way, but then it's shown this way in the episode so you know, it's interesting to see like what i originally thought and then what's happening the, the differences in my thought process of oh this is how i would interpret the scene without reading the book and this is how it gets interpreted after reading or seeing the show so yeah you know, it was interesting to see you know what you think is not always you know gonna show
0: yeah that's that's so funny because i think you you're so right and also whenever uh, every time i've uh, read a book and watched a movie or watched a movie and read a book Regardless of what sequence, like if I read a book and watch a movie, I'm obviously very disappointed. But if I watch a movie and read a book afterwards, I'm less disappointed, but I'm still disappointed. (laughs) But I think just going back to what you're saying about, you know, your thoughts, it'd be nice to see, like you mark, highlight them and say, you know, the, the book says it this way, and the movie, the show, sorry, the shows, Game of Thrones shows the show, shows it this way because that'll be nice to see don't you think
1: Mm -hmm, for sure it would
0: and then we can start a discussion thread and uh, open up a full chain or maybe tweet or whatever uh it'll be nice for everybody to contribute saying oh no no by the way this is how it happened in the show because it's always like in book as much as i write like holding the book Mm -hmm. what i hate is the fact that i can't create a discussion thread out of it right uh, or any other form of engagement what do you think of that
1: well, definitely. If if you're a physical person that likes the physical copies, like me, I tend to not really write in the books and all that stuff. Because I just don't want to damage it because it just looks so pretty as is. But like, mm-hmm. if there was like you know with digital platforms like audiobooks and just you know Kindles and tablets, then yeah, you know that there would be a nice way to just have all of our notes in like there, and then that way we can just share it whenever. I feel like that um idea would be really cool, and then that way it can create the uh, the invention of like virtual book clubs and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: well, uh, we don't have to invent anything because our next guest is doing exactly that. Uh, our next uh, guest uh, is implementing a software that is exactly that. So let's bring him in and talk about how to do what's called social annotation. Sounds good. Hello, everyone. My name is Kieran kuritala Welcome to Illuminated Podcast. I have with me my co-host Rohan Polakam and also an exceptional guest, Dr. Hudson, Justin Hudson is on the call with us. Dr. Hudson is an award-winning educator and digital transformation leader at Indiana University where he co-directs a system-wide Digital Gardener Initiative, a series of programs focused on faculty development and student success designed to integrate digital literacy, digital creativity, and digital learning into the classroom. He's also an associate professor in Department of English at IU Bloomington, where he directs online first-year composition program. Justin, welcome to Eliminated Podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about all the cool things we're doing at IU.
0: So that sounds great because we have been talking to students, professors, uh, chancellors, and presidents over the years. And one of the consistent themes that keeps coming about, coming about is what is digital literacy? Why should we care? And especially in the humanities program, you know, we all know that we are living in the digital native world. However, education fails to recognize it. Uh, even, for example, you know, even now there's a lot of professors that say, well, you know, we shouldn't be having iPads in the classroom. We should not let kids use tools like Grammarly or ChatGPT in the classroom. But the truth of the matter is, these kids, when they go to workforce, they will use iPads, they will use Macs, they will use Chat GPT, they will use Grammarly, they will use all the tools. So I love the fact that you're Championing digital literacy, and I would love to hear about it. So, talk to me about your um, your focus on digital literacy and where you see IU uh, in that program to help students learn and use digital tools as aggressively as possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a lot of stuff to cover in, in digital literacy. I mean, um, I think you know one of the great sort of pre-pand or pre-pandemic stuff, right? We had these job forecasts that said something like. By the year 2030, 85% of all jobs will be brand new. So we're, we're not talking about, you know, like Sarah from accounting replacing Ben, who just retired, uh, you know, somebody like that. It's not a replacement job, but new jobs, new industries, new careers, many of which that don't map into traditional disciplinary frameworks. And, and we know that within that frame, you know, the skills that still matter for students are the, the four C's, right? Communication, collaboration, critical thinking, um, and, and uh, creativity. Uh, and those are increasingly digitally inflected. And so if we're thinking about how do we prepare students for a future, and of course, this is all that these projections were before the pandemic, right? And so a future that is increasingly digitally oriented, we have to start thinking about the kinds of abilities that we want students to have beyond just the traditional core values. And so what we've been doing is really trying to find ways to integrate digital literacy um, at multiple levels of the curriculum. It's not a one class fixes everything, but rather really thinking strategically about how students can um you know learn not only basic competencies but become experts in operating with these tools. I mean the most pressing issue right now with digital literacy is learning how to effectively and ethically use uh, generative ai right so people who uh you know maybe working today are not going to lose their jobs to an AI. Um if they're gonna lose their job to somebody who works with AI better than they can. And it's that exactly yeah. Yeah and you're so, right.
0: I mean I think the whole um, screen actors guilds inner strike I do understand why they're saying you know we don't want to use chat GPT in doing it, but it's like saying, don't use spell checker with Word or don't use Grammarly when you're doing things. This is here, whether we like it or not, uh, we cannot just say, let's not use AI, let's, the the rule is how can we use it better to write faster, write better, and, uh, but I think people, it's just, I guess, natural resistance. So talk to me a little bit about how to use things like generative AI better, and, uh, you know, where you see in the spectrum of learning and growing digital literacy programs?
2: So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the use of something like a generative AI program, um, it's easy to make it do things. The hard part is understanding how to make it do things well um, or how to recognize when something is done at a level or an expectation that fits within an industry, a discipline, a practice, a, a you know, sort of set of outcomes and I think that's still one of the biggest gaps that we have is is not how how do we help students learn how to you know use this tool to write a paper, but more importantly, how do we help them understand the rhetorical strategies by which a paper becomes an effective element in their communication strategy, right? So, it's 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 moving maybe back a step to something we used to do in the early like 40s and 50s in writing classes, right? this sort of approach to thinking more strategically about the impact of communication, the, the recognition of a genre, how to ask the right kinds of questions to generate outputs that meet audience expectations, um, and then how to uh, navigate within that. And so as a teacher, you know, one of my things is um, not only how do we hide from ChatGPT, but how do we design things in our classroom that helps students develop the skills they need that are in complement to ChatGPT, not not, not to replace it, but to really develop those kind of critical depth uh, of skills of, you know, analysis and and reading, close reading and understanding text and understanding communicational strategies across Mm -hmm. different modalities. Um, And so that's the tension, I think, is not what can a tool do, but how can I still prepare students to be successful as intellectual, thoughtful, ethically responsible individuals, while also not ignoring the fact that there's this Behemoth in the room, right? This this elephant, yeah. if you will, that's everywhere. From video, audio, uh, text, um, you know, you need something produced. Right now, the machines can do it even faster. And sometimes it frustrates me because I had to learn how to do all this stuff the hard way, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I always get well, at least we don't in- have
0: to. Yeah, you're right. So Rohan, I think um, Justin brought up this inter- interesting point about. Pandemic and how the digital literacy gap, if you will, has impacted it. I know you were in the middle of the pandemic, um, and I think you're a junior in Mm -hmm. GSU. Can you talk to us a little bit about you know how your friends struggle with it and how tools like Justin is recommending or digital literacy that Justin is recommending would have helped you?
1: Well, since you know the pandemic, it just happened all of a sudden. That, at least that initial first year making the transition to online everyone still had all their textbooks and everything so we just brought all that home with us and we're still using those it was only really the semester afterward the teachers were like okay we found these new ways to teach and then the whole digital thing came online and first i mean i wish um it came sooner than later honestly because it was just one less thing to have to worry about worry about like oh where is this book that book from more of like um, a perspective of oh it'll be easy to get the information everything is at their fingertips instead of them scrambling looking for it in a textbook and most people don't even want to open a textbook so with the digital world everything's right there it's easy to access so that definitely that's one of the first things and right. when it comes to the social annotating part i remember even from high school i had to like grab like a marker or a highlighter highlight like a couple sentences and then on the side write my thoughts about it so with you this know. it's just so much easier and. Like you guys are saying with AI, I feel like AI can help better um, prepare us for what the annotations actually mean instead of just having like simple answers like, oh, this sentence made me feel angry. We actually can describe and put our full thoughts and if anything, AI will help us become better writers in that as well.
0: So yeah. I think Justin, this, this is a great segue into your digital gardener program because um one of the things that, you know, Rohan brought up is this idea that when you're right, when you're reading a textbook, I always used to highlight. I used to have like yellow highlighter, green highlighter, blue highlighter, all of that is great. But, you know, just like Rohan is saying, it only applies to my book. I cannot say, oh, by the way, I like this paragraph. What do you think of it? So I don't want to take your thunder away, but I think one of the cool things that you have, this idea is to take that annotation and cultivate. Knowledge, information, and uh, create conversations. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Digital Gardener program and how you have been involved with that? Yeah, so
2: I mean, we'll kind of put it in two conversations because we're talking about social annotation through a tool like Hypothesis as one technology that's part of a larger set of um, tools and technologies we integrate into the Digital Gardener initiative or Digital Gardener program. And for those who don't know, the Digital Gardener program. Um, it, it borrows its name from our IUPUI campus now, Indiana University at Indianapolis, because of the split between the two schools um, from their Idea Garden, and it's this really next like, generation teaching and learning space that was created by uh, Julie Johnson. Um, and so we we've we leveraged the tool, the term Digital Gardener, because we want to focus on cultivating digital ways of knowing, doing, and making across disciplines, and not really get bogged down in the problem of trying to define what is digital literacy because the term literacy itself carries a lot of baggage um, and you know, the standard academic English and all those kind of things that we, we try to address through things like integrating these kind of digital tools to help offset the digital divide and you know, those kind of practices. But, you know, Ron, I think it's interesting you talked about having your book in hand, right? And um, this process, uh, because strangely, as we've seen an increase towards open educational resources and more and more digital assets, one of the things that gets lost is we know for a fact that students read better and understand better if they're reading in a printed text and marking it up right. And so a technology like hypothesis which brings annotation in the social atmosphere and only makes learning sort of visible in a kind of interesting way, but it, it anchors your comments into the text and so it kind of serves as a bit of a reaction or recovery of some of that that gets lost when you go from a print book into only an e reader kind of thing right. Um, and so when we integrate something like Hypothesis with our faculty into our program, we, we highlight how it works to improve you know, uh, student-to-student engagement in online learning or just in digital spaces in general, how it works to help, you know, we can pre-see the text with ideas to kind of guide their reading. In some cases, some of the texts are really dense and really hard to figure out if you've not spent a lot of time in that subject matter. And so it's another learning aid, if you will. Um, but more importantly, it just... It allows students to have conversations around ideas, it anchors a discussion board inside of a text. And so I can't think of a better use of a digital platform um, than bringing that sense of community back to a space where, you know, it's a hadn't lived there before and print the text. You didn't pass books back and forth, right? <laughs> at least not at the same rate. But B, it really kind of recovers part of that that gets lost when you're in the box online on your own. You know, you're clicking through things in an LMS and it's sort of like you feel like you're in an island by yourself, uh, especially in a writing class where that community is really important. Um, it was a way for us to bring that back in and also to tap into digital literacy abilities they already possessed. I mean, it's basically a thread of discussion that you're familiar with if you have an Instagram account. Like, right. you know, it's not uh, out of the, out, of the, out of the realm of things they were familiar with. Um, and so when we bring it in front of faculty, we we present it like that. It's an it's an, another approach to learning, to engagement that enhances students' digital engagement, but it does it in a relatively like low-lift, easy-access platform that lives inside of our, our systems as they're already designed.
0: So can you talk to us a little bit about Hypothesis and how it integrates with, for example, um, your learning management system, whether it's Canvas or otherwise, is that like a plug-in to the browser or is it a software on top of your lms can you talk to us a little bit about that um
2: it's a third party platform uh, i think it runs through an api um uh, technically speaking uh basically what we do is you you design you have what's it's a task or turned on in your classroom depending on you know how the school handles the actual processing of that uh a instructor creates an assi- reading assignment and then they just like click add external tool and they add hypothesis right through that platform I and mean, it's two clicks you connect your PDF or your online link or whatever your asset is that you're, you're connecting to. Um, and then it just auto populates into the, your in Canvas, in this case, it's our LMS um, as just a regular assignment. Um, so it's a pretty, I mean, it's not, I said, I almost said, it's not really hard to do uh, once you understand that like the three step process. But the best part about the whole thing is that it integrates so seamlessly with Canvas that you can then open up SpeedGrader and you can see each individual student's annotations on their own like little platform. So you can see the text mm-hmm. and I can only see what Rohan has marked up, right? I don't have to, mm-hmm. and then I can go to the next student and the next student. Um, and so while I'm not, we don't actively try to ju- um, assess the quality of the annotations in first-year composition. We're really just trying to get them to read the text and meaningfully engage. I know some, some programs and some higher level courses that we have that are focused more on that kind of critical reading uh, do use this as a way of looking at the actual quality of the annotations mm-hmm. on top of the type and approach that students are doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's a seem, It's a relatively seamless kind of integration um, on the on the LMS. Well, if you've had to use any other external tool in our system, mm-hmm. then you should know how to use Hypothesis without any trouble.
0: So Rohan, would that help if you're if you have marked up your text while reading it on Blackboard or Canvas and annotated it, and your instructor sees what you marked up, uh, how would that have helped you as a student? Well,
1: definitely it would have helped because right away I would have known, like, oh, I can't really just put in simple answers as I would <laughs> used to from my freshman high school habits. So it will actually make me think more about what I'm actually reading and overall, like self-improve me, that's just one way. And then also, I think it would just be easier on a professor's side because say that there's this big book and all the students have theirs, and then all the students are in one section, it will be literally impossible to figure out (laughs) what's going on. So it it seems like it's a very well-managed system. And I honestly wish we had that when I was in high school and early college.
0: And also, I think I like the fact that it also... If a professor can see engagement instead of outcome, because all the things that, for example, with English composition, uh, if you with this new issue with generative AI, uh, if you ask a student to say read *Lord of the Flies* and give me a summary, you know it's so easy to write it, and you yeah. know students can even go to generative AI and say write me lot of the fly summary but write me in a bad student way or something yeah, i'm sure yeah. it's going to write something with spelling mistakes and typos and grammatical issues and you know like <laughs> so i'm sure the students know how to figure it out but with this if you say you know read lot of the flies i mean just picking up a random book here uh, or catch a predator or something and say read lot of the flies and mark down things that excite you engage with you our yeah you know, you can understand. Um, is that what you're thinking, Justin, or am yeah, so, I off, off mark? Here? I mean,
2: we we have a bunch of different approaches um, depending on, you know, when we first started this pilot, it was, it was actually initially designed to be integrated into like just 12 classes, right? 12 online classes that I was in charge of. And then of course, as we were redesigning the course, uh, the pandemic hit. And so our 12 became 65 sections a semester because we became the model for, you know, most of our first year comp uh, program. Um, and, and it's such a success that we've just kept it. Um, but one of the things that we do is students have to read five essays for the class, right? Um, and so we ask students, uh, first year students in the class, to make three additive annotations and three and two responsive annotations in a text. So they have to make three new generative contributions from themselves, and they have to respond to two of their classmates. Um, you know, and there's usually some thematic guides or some conceptual guides. Uh, but the part that I think is most incredible is that it allows us to ensure that students have been reading it without having to do a reading summary before they come to class. It's right. less it's less labor on their end, but more output. And the funny thing is, is after about the first couple of times, the students started to get mad when the instructor would, would say, so what did you think about the reading? And they're like, we've already covered this, right? Like they <laughs> want to move ahead in the discussion, which is probably the most uh, sort of interesting uh, thing that came out early on when we piloted it. But I think what we've seen now uh, more and more as it's been used now, I think it's our third year of using this uh, at scale, um, Mm -hmm. is things like instructors use it to identify where tensions live because the kinds of questions students are asking, where confusion is, or more importantly, they look at the sections that students haven't marked up, you know. Uh, and say, oh, why, why are we not marking this up? Is it just too hard? Are they just skipping it? I mean, you get a lot of annotations in the first, you know, five pages, that kind of stuff. But I mean, they're, they're relatively exactly. short. Anyway. Yeah. But the best part, I mean, not the best part, but one of the, the fun things too is it's it's actually more work to try and read it and have ChatGBT generate your annotation than it is just to do it yourself because they're short form comments, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's been a fun uh, approach to students. Students have, students have uh, responded really positively to the tool as well as instructors. It's one of the Few things we've ever integrated, uh, particularly at scale, that has had right. pretty consistent positive response on both ends. Um, and yeah. so that's, you know, it's again, it's a low lift for easy access point that um, I think, you know, throw on to your point, you know, by the year two, we had students who had two years of high school online and, and you know, maybe had lost some of those skills or didn't we never really presented some of those critical reading skills. And so now our pedagogy had to adjust to try and help highlight specific ways of reading that you know they maybe didn't have, whereas you were in college when that <laughs> when that hit. So you know you're a little bit maybe more advantaged to survive the online world. Yeah, that oh, sounds
0: great. Uh, go
1: ahead, Ron. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, that's just awesome. I especially like the part where you actually put in like I don't want to say limitations, but it's like the criteria to where you know the students aren't actually just putting random stuff. So it, it helps the student improve more because I mean, yes, I admit it. I was one of those students that would just like oh, I just want to get it done. So yeah, me too. <laughs> I definitely like that, and then it's such it's online, and you were like, and you were saying, um, oh, other people can like communicate. It really brings, especially in the digital world we have today, it really brings that connection of, oh, student to student personal uh, interactions, face to face, but online. So you still have that engagement. is what I'm trying to say, which is very lovely.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the engagement a little bit, um, both with the DGI uh, Digital Gardener Initiative and also with Hypothesis. Um, well, I obviously in Kindle, you can do this and also Apple Books where when you're reading uh, or Audible, if you will. So when you're reading, you can annotate. Um, so in Audible, I like the fact that when you annotate, you can share that annotation um, and you can also mark it in different colors. Um, but the thing that I did not, I could not do in Audible is that I can't like highlight and say, let me open a discussion thread with this saying, right. hey, what did you think of this uh, segment? Can students do that? Or can the students at least do it with the instructor?
2: Yeah, so I mean, um, students have two basic choices within Hypothesis as an interface. You can just highlight something um, and then you can highlight and add an annotation, right? And with once you add an annotation, it is essentially a discussion board as a default starting point. Um, of course, they can make them private so that they may have certain notes that they only want for themselves. So it's not like everything has to be shared. But then within this discussion, sort of board discussion thread system, you know, they can add a text, they can add links, they can embed videos, they can add, you know, digital content that's not just text. Um, And and once they publish it and hit OK, like then that's available for anybody else to comment on. Not all the annotations get commented on, of course. Um, But, you know, if you say, you know, for your first annotation highlight... uh, um, you know, a major theme of a paragraph or highlight of the topic sentence or something, you know, like that. Not not that we do that, but that's an example, right? Then the next question might be like, tell me why this topic sentence matters. And this is something we could use for like a close reading of a student writing as opposed to a close reading of a professional essay. Um, But it it allows for, I mean, it's individualized annotations and then I'm contributing my own, but it defaults to this kind of threaded structure once it's available in the public. And, you know, I think, uh, Remy Collier, who's a scholar out of UC Denver, um, has this great line. He talks about it's it's first draft thinking for students. And so imagine your ability to read and think through ideas, but to share that kind of raw initial reactions, either, you know, I like this, I don't like this. But everything you post, once it's online, it is a little box. It's got, you know, your HD, basic uh, WYSIWYG kind of editor stuff. And then, you know, you got a reply button uh, right underneath it. And then you can reply to the replies and get all these like weird strategies of,
0: yeah. Layers. So you who is replying? Is it their fellow students or is it like World Wide Web or uh, no? So faculty? once
2: the part of one of the reasons why Hypothesis was our uh, the partner we chose to work with on this is that it, um, they do have an open version that you can use online and anybody can mm-hmm. comment on it. But because it's inside of Canvas, it protects student identity. So only other students in that class can see okay. the annotations. Um, and you know, there's a kind of toggling there, again, private versus public within the class, but it still doesn't go outside of Canvas, never leaves outside of that, that box of, of students uh, in, in terms of the conversation. Um, and you Great. can, I think you can set it into different groups or sections. So if you wanted to make smaller, like normally writing classes you know, are, are, are you know, 25 or less, 19, something like that. I do teach one class that's got 100 students, and there's no way I would have 100 students annotate the same 12 pages. It would be right. too many annotations. And so we'd put them into sections or groups. To let them mm-hmm. mark it up um and that's also a relatively uh, smooth process inside of canvas now as well um and i know blackboard has a similar you know integrates with blackboard and a few other uh, lms's like that as well
0: great well i mean rohan do you have any questions on digital garden initiative or annotation um it's
1: more from the student perspective of when with the annotations i know you were saying that like not every student will have like um the exact same annotations and stuff because that actually was going to bring another topic about have you came across um any type of plagiarism or the students copying off each other while using this and if so then how have you uh defend and
2: protected it yeah i mean so this is something we've been trying to look at a little bit so um separate this is separate these are kind of separate from the digital gardener right so as a member of the faculty at bloomington you know we've integrated this at scale in our writing program and then when we We have, when we encourage faculty to use it in the Digital Cardinal Program, that's IU wide. So that's like seven campuses, you know, and uh, two regional uh, centers and those kind of things. So it's a little bit of a different conversation. But within the uh, English department, the writing program that I'm a part of, once we started to implement this tool during the pandemic and we went to scale, we went from 10 sections to 60, we decided to launch a research project to go with it. So there's an 11-member research team, roughly speaking, that has been, we gathered uh, data and IRB approval. We gather the annotations from students, we gather the, the, the stuff they write in the class, their performance, you know, those kind of uh, data markers, and we're in the process to try and actually see to what extent do the conversations in the annotations then translate into the actual essays they write. Um, I don't know to the depth of which we've seen plagiarism, it's, um, I know we've seen a lot of like um, open crediting in discussions. Mm-hmm. Students in a classroom will say, Well, as you know, as as Bill was saying, or as you know, uh Jeremiah was talking about in their annotation, they'll do this this kind of like referential, you know, it's almost like a Facebook thing or a social media tag, like so-and-so said X first, that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, we've seen that, but I don't the the essays they write in class, minus like the first one, which is a comparative essay, but most of them take up with those texts as a lens for something else. So the kind of, it's not as the way the course is designed doesn't lend itself to that kind of act of plagiarism or borrowing of ideas. And if you want to think about it that way, Um, I don't say that is, I don't want to say it isn't happening, (laughs) but we've not had, I've not had any instructor yet bring it to me and say, this has happened in my class. And that's, you know. um,
0: And also uh, it is not an assessment tool. It's really more of an engagement evaluation tool. So we're not really, I don't even know if there's plagiarism option, you know, or what are they doing trying to copy other each other's annotation i mean right. how is that going to help them um but then again kids do the weirdest thing kids I was do, thinking listen, on, students do all kinds of fun things <laughs> yeah. one of the things that i was more worried about not worried i was trying to understand the dimension is like what is the moderation capabilities what if somebody puts an annotation i don't know that's not Yeah, that's not kosher, that's not um, on a right subject, or somebody responds back to the moderator, some responds back to an annotation in a bullying way. What type of tools does hypothesis have for faculty members to be able to um, fight back or uh, prevent those issues? Because anytime you have an open forum like this, Students always use it for wrong purposes. Some students use it for wrong purposes. Right,
2: right, right. Um, well, I mean, I think first off, we we usually start with a kind of ethics of practice or um, a basic guide and expectation for you know what we think behavior is supposed to look like. I and mean, we don't don't overtly police uh, that kind of stuff, but it's more of an ethics of practice. Like, here are some good strategies for this kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes students say things that are offensive and insensitive. Um, And unknowingly do so. I mean, they are freshmen, and, you know, they, you know, in the sense of maybe they don't realize that what they're saying is problematic. And so there's a discussion point. To this point, I don't think there's a way to actually moderate them. Uh, on the hypothesis the discussion board post inside of the LMS. I mean, I know you can moderate and control what posts get seen and you can take, you know, block them and that kind of stuff in the online open version, right? In the sort of the open world version, if you will. But inside of the LMS, because of email access and, you know, notification of moderation of posts and things like that, the hypothesis doesn't currently have that um Capability. Uh, I know it's in the roadmap, but they want to try and do down the line that that's part of it, but right now it's not there. So what we do um, instead, or as in a kind of a response or a, maybe a preventive measure, is we talk about, you know, just mo- we model good behavior, but we talk about the sort of ethics of, of discussion board posts and how we engage in discussion in general. In many ways, it's very similar to the classroom. You know, students can sometimes say things in a class unintentionally that might be. Uh, problematic or inflammatory or um, to other students or insensitive. Uh, And so we use it as a teachable moment. And so inside of the discussion threads, things may come up and other students might interact and talk and engage and around something that might, might've been problematic, but for the most part, you know, we we let the teacher sort of address these kind of things and ask them to do so, like to to talk about strategies for for discussion board, ethics of responsibility and, and practice, uh, and then to address these things when they come up in ways that are meaningful and textual and talk about the rhetorical significance of what has been written or said. You know, so it, it follows that kind of pattern that we already have in a, in a regular in-person class discussion. It's just that this time there's a written record of it. It's online. Um, but it's that's part, of, I think, the advantage of something like social annotation is it feels legitimately like it's putting a classroom discussion uh, inside of a text It's anchoring it next to the text and so while i could see the need and perhaps the want uh, for moderation those ability to to turn off to block to um, kind of post um, in some of the most extreme circumstances um, right now it's not really an issue we really haven't had any of these kind of issues come up in our you know three years of using the tool in the classroom at least not to my knowledge no instructor has brought it to me and said this has happened in my classroom so uh, it just doesn't seem to happen as much as I think you would think. Um, but again, I think that goes back to our pedagogical practice and our approach and the way we try to focus on community building and engagement as a class, online or otherwise, uh, and then how that circles into the practices that we the, the students then engage in and behave in the ways they behave and the ways they approach the conversations uh, around
0: reading. So uh, that's great, Justin. I like the fact that you guys are doing an ethics practice and teaching good behavior. But I agree, I think. Uh, My comment was a little bit uh, off-putting anyway, because, you know, ultimately students are there to learn. And if, just like they're in a classroom, uh, if they're going to say something offensive, it's going to count against them in a classroom. And I'm sure in the digital garden, it's the same thing. And they also have to be as good citizens. They have to learn and grow. I, I love the idea that as part of digital literacy, you're giving them Good guidelines and good ethics to follow, and I love everything you're doing with respect to as a faculty member and also the digital literacy. I would love to hear your backstory and understand like what drives you and what makes you commit yourself so holistically for higher education.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. For me, it sort of starts from a, um, a premise of what kind of classes did I enjoy as a as a student, right? Um, and you know how did I get where I am? I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get where I am uh, as an undergrad, including at some point flunking out of college, right? Uh, and then taking a year off and, and coming back and and sort of you know not because I was incapable of doing the work, but because I was kind of lost and trying to figure this stuff out. And and I was fortunate, you know, like most people who become academics, you know, you meet a few instructors who really invest in you um, and think about you as a person that in in a way in a discipline in a field that kind of opens up opportunities and, and helps you see yourself in really uh, empowered ways. And so I had the same experience. There are multiple uh, different instructors, but but as I moved out of you know grad school and into the field, it became a commitment to thinking about how do we build a better learning experience? I mean, I do a lot with technology and I love video games. Um, video games are incredible in the fact that if they can't teach you how to play them and play them well, they don't make any money. And so their very premise of, of operation is, is a learning premise, mm-hmm. right? Um, And they're often wrapped in stories, they're engaging, they're replayable. Students will spend 500 hours on one game and that's a small game, right? If you think about the way games work. And so I, I, early on in my career, I started thinking about how do I bring more gaming principles and practices in the classroom? And this led into this like bigger conversation about, you know, what does it mean to build a better learning experience and how do we facilitate that? Um, And in today's day and age, some of the really exciting things that happen are are opportunities that come through um, next generation technologies, right? And rethinking the learning space is not just the desk in the room, but uh, as a space for us to engage, to actively talk about ideas, to solve problems. And we've seen some of this transition over the last decade or so around active learning, flipped classrooms, um, augmenting the space. But I think, you know, a question that I ask a lot, and I've, I've asked it at several talks that I've given this semester, which is, when is the last time, just I'm asking faculty, right? When is the last time you had fun in the classroom? And you would be amazed at how many faculty cannot actually answer this question. Right. And I don't mean it has to be fun, like, oh, we're having a great time. I, I think it's good. But Or, you know, just really ask them, like, what kind of fun elements, what makes your class fun? What makes it meaningful? What makes it engaging? Those kind of categories. And too often, you know, the the response is, well, this is the content that I cover. Um, or these are the things I have to get done because of X. And, and some faculty move into things like instructional design and talk about, you know, designing their classroom and scaffolding, which is great towards student learning outcomes. But to be quite honest with you, students don't care about student learning outcomes. They sure. care about the engagement and they care about the experience and they care about the grade. And usually yeah. not in that order, usually the grade is first because that's what they've been conditioned to do. So, you know, when, how did I get here? Uh, you spend enough time playing with, you know, creative technologies and building media and, and thinking about new ways of expressing ideas. Uh, I mean, as a, as a grad student, I did uh, two dissertations, one in print and one as a digital performance um, and trying to showcase how those two things work together. Uh, and it's it's always been uh, sort of a, a drive for me to think about like, it's not that these other opportunities for representation are less than text. They just do it differently. And so then that sort of translates naturally to the classroom. It's not that the sage on the stage is a bad model. Lecture can be a really effective tool, but it's not the only tool. And in many cases, it's not the best tool, right? Or not the best approach, not the best thing. So we really try to lean into um, using It's never about the technology, it's about how the technology may complement or enhance the pedagogical practice, the learning experience, the development model, um, and the needs of the classroom. And if we can pair those things up in really strategic ways, you can create dynamic and unique kind of engagement. So hypothesis in the classroom in our class solves a major problem for us. But this past fall, I taught a class using Minecraft EDU. Um, and we partner with the IU Archives. And so students are doing archive research, recreating campus buildings in Minecraft, and then embedding videos and text and magazine articles that are linked out through NPCs inside the game.
1: <laughs> so it's an
2: immersive writing experience that covers all the same things you learn in first-year composition. It's just not wrapped up in you know the sort of standard syllabus, the standard classroom. It's And it's like 96 students in a writing class. They're broken into teams. They work in pods. They're working in collaboration. Um, and so it's just... It's an inviting, fun, playful space, and, and by doing that, we encourage failure as a positive value, not as a negative. Right? We get, we design the pedi- the course structure to enable um, new ways to engage and succeed, um, and to lower barriers to success. And so that stuff just it drives me because I think when you get done, you see students can can legitimately have a positive, welcoming experience in a classroom that doesn't have to be about the work they did to the grade they got. If they leave my class and they don't ever talk about the grade, then I have done my job,
0: right? Sure. I've done
2: something meaningful or or different at least. And that's way more exciting to me than, than just saying, well, I've, I've once again helped them learn these basic principles about writing, you know, these basic principles about writing. You can do that in any number of ways. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, you know, the the long-winded answer of I just I get really excited about, you know, the way we create experiences and how those things can lead to new the same outcomes, but in a new maybe more engaging way, mm-hmm. um, and this is part of the reason why I love the, the sort of ed tech sector and creative technologies is that they allow for expression and representation um, in new modes, and if you do that you enhance students capacities to express themselves. Which in theory <laughs> makes them better for the future going forward, right? They have different yep. ways of representing their thinking, then they're likely to be more successful in different avenues because it's not just how do I write it or how do I tell, tell you about it. Maybe how do I build a, a Zoom background? How do I create a brand? How do I communicate my identity in a video? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what does an audio scape look like? You know, those kind of things um, are just exciting to me, and particularly when you see it, students find it exciting, and so that that opens up a whole new level of how we talk about stuff um right. um plus i don't have but- to read the same paper 20 times then i get to see cool <laughs> videos and video games and you know whatever else comes out of the class
0: <laughs> yeah it sounds great I, I know rohan you're a video you're a gamer i'm sure you're excited about npcs and uh this this engaging digital learning experience uh what do you think of that
1: no i love it like when he was describing it i was getting flashbacks of my a couple of final years at GSU, we actually have a building called the Creative Media Institution Building or CMI Building for short. So in that building, a lot of like the projects would be like, oh, about like the new technology. So they have a big showcase at the end where instead of people just, oh, presenting essays and stuff, they'll actually show like their video games or their media projects that made. And people actually got to try out live demos and everything. And that to me was like, okay, now I see why my friend was a part of this class. It's actually you're learning the skills and having fun with it. And that's like the best way to me, if you're having fun with it, then you'll learn it better too. And especially once you're, since you're learning and having fun with it, you know that you're good at it if you can teach it as well. Yeah, yeah
2: I mean, that's that's the fun part, right? Like it's... um you know, I would say this, if I have, you know, I've been teaching writing for like 20 years, uh, and I can count on one hand how many times students will actively go out and show their essays they've written to their friends, right? <laughs> but uh, I haven't taught a class in the last 10 years where the projects aren't shown to other people outside the class before they come to class. That's like every time they do it every time they make a video or whatever, but being able to translate and communicate your thinking about your project, right? Those skills that they fit in a portfolio. They, you know, you have to then articulate your thinking. Um, in many cases, you're still writing the, like, reflections or the design rationales or whatever goes into it, um, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's, I don't know, man. I, I like it when students are legitimately happy to be in class. They find the engagement challenging, fun, and rewarding, um, and yep. they contribute. I learned so much from students. Like, I can't, I can't imagine going to classroom and not wanting to learn from the students because they just... Not only in terms of like the technical stuff, but legitimately in terms of their thinking opens up new avenues for the what I've been dealing with. I'm like, oh, well, that's that's brilliant. Like, <laughs> um, you know, so it's. Uh, but I know that you know, not a lot of folks are taught this way, and our our learning systems aren't designed to support this. And so you have to find ways to maneuver within the structures as they exist to create these enhanced experiences or these alternative experiences um, that sort of complement the 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 infrastructure that makes higher education run, which is mm-hmm. That's, you know the gamer in me is like, how do I move within the rules, right? To to, to make these things work, so.
0: Sure. Well, that sounds great. And, and I think we're kind of coming to the top of the hour here. And I want to talk to you about the future of education and also like regenerative AI, because I got a chance to read your LinkedIn article on the ethics of practice mm. for um, generative AI. And I think that's great because I think, you know, just like anything internet, whether it's hypothesis or whether it is using... Google in the classroom or calculator in the classroom. Now, whether we like it or not, generative AI is part of our experience. So, you know, setting those rules or ethics will help instructors, faculty members, and administrators instead of saying, don't use generative AI in the classroom. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, tools like generative AI in the classroom and how to move from policing to, you know, ethical, to socializing so that people become better citizens when they try to use these tools in their classroom.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I you know this is still still so relatively new. Um, it's hard to determine if you know what we're going to do is, is going to be successful the way that we want it to be. but I think the, mm-hmm. the basic premise is it starts from the fact that if all you're trying to do is to catch students cheating and um, you know and, and or if they can actively just cheat their way through your assignment, then you've kind of missed the point of what you're trying to do in the classroom, right? Um, because A, there's not really any good detective tool out there. I mean, by design, they're they're just neural networks and the structure and the scope at which they're operating is just ahead of of what's going to happen uh, and how you can catch them, right? And most of the tools we've seen so far also carry the standard, like the detection tools still carry standard gender and race bias kind of stuff that we want to just kind of avoid.
0: But Um, even if you catch it, you know, I think as good digital literacy advocates like you and I are, it's better for us to enable them right. to use these tools and become faster. For example, I it took me three months to learn HTML. Um, and over the years, I've used specific tools and stuff like that. And now my son can learn it in three hours. So what's wrong yeah. with that? Um, no, but,
2: I mean, it speeds it up. I mean, you know, not... The- to f- makes you feel any better. Socrates complained about writing. I mean, you right. know, writing was something <laughs> he didn't want people to learn. So he never wrote a word, word obviously. Yeah, yeah. Too. Yeah. So, uh, but I think the biggest one for us is to help students understand that in practice to know like what's allowed in terms of like things you don't have to disclose versus what practices should you disclose versus what's just not allowed. Right. And so, you know, if the robot helps you come up with ideas and produces all the text, that's that's just cheating. That's just that that's no different than you know other kinds of forms of collusion or plagiarism um, in terms of how we talk about academic integrity. But you know, if you're using it as an assistant to help clean up some of the writing, um, or if you're using it, you know, in, in the ways to come up with some, an outline for some how ideas might be represented, you know, those practices have been around for a while. <laughs> I mean, you know, the squiggly in word will well, is basically this uh, in some cases doing the same thing. So it's really kind of orient students around. You know, what are the different ways you can use some of these tools? And then, of those ways, what should you be recognizing, crediting, citing, um, you know, acknowledgements, however you want to do it, uh, in such a way that it, it's not that you're trying to take ownership of work you didn't do, it's trying to be responsible for the work that you did do. Right. And those practices remain true when even if you're just writing a research paper and you're pulling from five sources from you know the library, or in this case Google, because the students don't actually know where the library is sometimes. Right? it's a joke, but um, you know, so I think that is the problem, and uh, that's the tension. And so we're we're trying to front load that this year in our writing program. We've got this ethics of practice document that we're going to include in the syllabi. The instructors are gonna help talk about it in the classroom, and I think we're even actively trying to integrate it in strategically in our writing program, so different activities in the class will ask students to use ChatGPT. And this isn't just in my online classes or in the online courses, this is our writing program more broadly with um, our Scott Barnett, who's the director of our writing program at IU Bloomington. You know, we've been in conversations about how do we help integrate some of these things strategically so that it becomes a part of the learning process and not a tool we've tried to remove and students and ultimately use anyways, right? So yeah. um, it's that turn to, to thinking about it. And of course, there are some disciplines where I could see this being a problem um, and, you know, then they they run into different kinds of issues, but it, for me, it comes back to. If I can, if your all your questions are content based, and I can have the internet or the machine help me just answer the content, then maybe I want to rethink the engagement that leads right. to my demonstration of knowledge.
0: Yeah, just I think, because rethink you know. your questions if that's the case.
2: Right. I mean, because if I get yeah. a job in the world, I'm I'm going to be allowed to search things on the internet, like yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? and so it's. Uh, I mean, certain companies probably don't want me feeding company documents into ChatGPT, but uh, you know, th- but that's also an ethics of practice and a responsibility of practice you know, knowing what you can disclose or what you should and shouldn't share with these sort of generative tools. Um, And it's not just ChatGPT. I mean, I think more broadly about, you know, visual creation, audio creation, video creation, um, and they're all getting better. And so they're not going away, they're getting better. So we have to think strategically about how do we learn to work more effectively and more ethically with these wonderful, wonderful technologies um, before things sort of skew off the charts for us.
0: Sounds great. Justin, I know that we can speak for hours together, but, uh, you know, we want to, we don't want to take away more time than we can afford with you. Thank you so much for joining the podcast and we'll include the show notes with all your great work and also some of the show notes. But before we go, um, leave the podcast, is there any question we should have asked you that we forgot to ask you because of all the great knowledge you've already shared with us?
2: Man, should quite, uh, what question should you ask me? That's a, that's a really, that's a good one. Um, you know, I think uh, maybe it's sort of where, you know, what's the question that people want to have? Like, where's, where's higher ed going to be in, in like five years, 10 years? Those yes, the um And for me, it comes back to the kind of work that I do uh, as a scholar, but also as a faculty development person, which is, you know, if you have a DEI initiative on your campus and you don't have digital literacy as a component of that, you, you're you missing something that's significant and not just in terms of the digital divide, which, you know, we breaks unfairly across race, gender and class. Um but also in terms of accessibility in terms of access and accessibility and so thinking about how these technologies and their integration can help remove some of that gap it helps us avoid what i think it's a concept called double jeopardy digital inequity that if you come to higher ed and you're already behind because of you know your your place in the world uh, and you don't you're not required to learn these skills the gap gets further and further by the time you leave your higher education career, because the students who come in with digital literacy skills are going to continue to excel on those skills. And the students who don't will have mm-hmm. a harder time getting caught up. And so, you know, when you think about what where we're we going to be in five years, I hope my my intent would be to think that more and more folks in higher education are going to commit to digital literacy, um, not only more broadly, but like digital activities, digital creativity, digital learning in the classroom to yeah. enhance student learning, but also to help upskill and uh, uh, sort of improve uh, those sort of conditional things that have been dividing us um, unfairly, if you will, uh, for yeah. many years
0: now. I agree. I think, uh, you know, I don't know people, regardless of the cost of technology, you know, before 50 years from now, only people who could afford to buy books were were, were able to study. Right. Um, and there was only less than 10 percent of the people who could afford buy books. Now your book is your phone. And uh, everybody has a small. Everybody has a smartphone, um, you know, and everybody has internet, whether we um, regardless of the speed of the internet and stuff like that. And I think with the addition of things like generative AI, like you described, uh, we are creating a level playing field where everybody has access to information and knowledge as well. And how? And ultimately, what we are left with is how do you apply this knowledge? How do you apply this information? when everybody has similar information and we're not compartmentalizing the information only for rich people or you know people of this color or this flavor uh, i think that's where the digital divide um, really become starts to blur if you will almost disappear and makes it easy for everybody to acquire knowledge as easily as possible and uh, decide to use it or not um, obviously you know, there's always going to be a risk where people can use choose to use knowledge for the wrong purposes but we always had that problem it's not like you know it's a new problem to have it's just that we have a lot more inform- lot more people with a lot more access to information and uh, let's see where that takes us so uh, Justin thank you so much for your time I really appreciate all your thoughts and comments uh, you're welcome to join the anytime Uh, and we'll put the show notes with all your great uh, links as well thank you for joining the podcast
2: thank you for having me guys i appreciate your time today
0: everything is a service whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely informing residential customers of an impending outage or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At N2N, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.